0: You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we are taking a closer look and a listen to the earliest days of sugar in the islands. We're featuring voices from the past, part of our partnership with the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. It was in 1835 when Hawaii's first commercial sugar plantation opened for business on Kauai at Koloa, about 10 miles south of Lehui. The Koloa Plantation went through a lot of changes over more than a century and a half, including different ownership, but one way or another, its work continued until 1996. And the Koloa Plantation is our focus this morning. Our guests include Ada Kuna, who is working on a book entitled The Koloa Plantation A Talk Story. Good morning, Ada. Good morning. And a co-author on that book, Melissa McFerrin, is a, she's also the coordinator of Kaloa Plantation Days, which is an annual celebration that's held each summer, even when it's virtual. Hi, Melissa. Good morning. I'm so glad the two of you could join us. We know your memories won't stretch back to the 1800s, but uh, have any of our listeners out there heard any stories from Kapuna about Sugar Plantation Days? Any memories yourself? You can give us a call, join our conversation at 808-941-3689 from Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the Neighbor Islands. But first, to set the scene and to tr- introduce our first oral history segment, we uh, our clip, we are joined by our news director, Bill Dorman. Good morning, Bill.
1: Good morning, Catherine. You know, as you mentioned, Koloa Plantation started in 1835, but it struggled financially for decades in those first years until the Reciprocity Treaty of 1875. That allowed sugar from Hawaii to be sold duty-free in the United States, And over the next 35 years, the number of sugar plantations across the islands more than doubled to 52. And the amount of land under sugar cultivation exploded from about 12,000 acres to 214,000 acres. Plantation work, as everyone knows, brought tens of thousands of immigrant laborers over the years, and that included to Koloa. But Koloa was an interesting location for other reasons as well. At one point, it was the number three whaling port in Hawaii. It was a missionary station set up there shortly before the sugar plantation. And that brings us to our first history. Eric Ikimoyer was born in 1931 in Waimea became a well-known lecturer on local history. His father, Hector, was the manager of the Koloa Sugar Company from 1933 until 1948 when it merged with Grove Farm. So most of the Depression years through the war. His mother, by the way, was a descendant of the Sinclair, Gay, and Robinson families who owned Ni'ihau and parts of Kauai. He was on the board of the Kauai Historical Society and active with other community organizations before he passed away in 1996. The interview we're about to hear was done with Warren Nishimoto in 1987.
2: Koloa has a very heavy missionary influence. Prior to the missionaries coming, is there any historical evidence of of,
3: uh, what was here in Koloa?
4: When the ocean was too rough to go fishing, Napali or North Shore... Lihue side, it was nice down here and there was ample water here and lots and lots of Hawaiians lived here. This is why they had the big whaling port because again, there's a nice anchorage. When it was too rough in the early days to go to Honolulu from Lihui side, people left from Kolo. You had to caught the boat to Honolulu from Kolo landing and that's probably why the white man first ended up here. They put the mission stations where there were lots of people to convert. You know, in the early days, Koloa had enough international traffic that Mm -hmm. the kingdom had a customs agent at Koloa. Went down and collected the boxes for the materials brought in, either goods, whatever it is, foreign imports. All of it was taxed. In fact, in my Scottish letters, everybody is telling my grandmother in Scotland, when you buy material, make something out of it, make a skirt, or make a big nightshirt, or something like that. Because customs didn't charge you for clothing, but they charge you for material. In Koloa, there's two things. First of all, Koloa is no longer a plantation as such, as a, as it was Koloa plantation up until 1948, right? January 1st, when Grove Farm took it over as a beginning and as an end. And of course, secondly, what is the oldest Sugar plantation. So this is where it all began. So that makes it historically significant. Though the first sugar plantation started here, uh, a lot of the lands of Koloa are not the greatest for sugar because they're so rocky. Terrible rock. Especially uh, the Makai sections down here. The ones all uh, down to Mahalapu. But even, even up top, my gosh, you know, some of these lands have been in sugar for, I don't know how many years. And still, every time they plow them, they come up with rocks as big as, you know, a car or half a car that are still coming up, still coming up. And this is after a hundred years. So it's very, very hard on the equipment, very hard on the mill for all the rock that would, was going in. They had a tough time during the war um, for lack of personnel. And by the time the war was over, the railroad system was shot. The coal was, I think, up close to a million bucks in debt. Koloa needed a good infusion of money. And it. Man.
1: You know, money and financial challenge is a key part of Kaloa's development at several points in its history, but what a rich history that is over such a long period of time.
0: Yes, indeed. And, you know, Ada, I know you have been working on this book. You've talked to, I think, interviewed, what, some like 70 people. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about this particular part? Well, park?
5: my thoughts were, uh, you know, Coloa was covered by the
0: Kaloa Volcanic Series.
5: And so the soil here was very thin. The Hawaiians uh, were amazingly, they they covered it, they brought the str- soil down in a stream, and they covered Pahoehoe, and really had a fabulous uh, irrigation system. So they were able to grow lots of uh, fruits and vegetables, which uh, is what uh, really uh, the uh, reason why the uh, whalers called uh, because they could get water they could get fruits and vegetables and uh so that that was uh what really brought them here and then uh when the uh, Ladden company which is three gentlemen had a mercantile company in honolulu and they decided to set one up here because of of the uh uh whalers and uh and it was here when they were talking about setting up the Uh, their business, they discovered the sugar cane growing around the taro pits. So that's what gave them the idea to start raising sugar.
0: And Melissa, what are you struck by about this period? Well, it's
6: just that what was there before and then what happened after sugar. So much of the story of Kaloa Plantation Days has been about sugar since the first founding of the first successfully, uh, sh- commercially successful mill in 1835. But there is a rich history of agriculture and even of sugar as one of the canoe plants. In fact, um, Kaloa rum, they are looking at that history before sugar was even here. So there are some things in Kaloa like Kaneoluma, which really pays tribute to what came before. So I think that's part of the interest that while the story doesn't only start with sugar after whaling and after the first successful commercial sugar mill, but that it came before us.
0: Well, let's go back to our historical voices at this point. Bill, who's next?
1: It is. It's such a pattern of, as Melissa was saying, different different threads into this. And the next person we'll hear from was a daughter of immigrants who came to Hawaii to work in the sugarcane fields. And in this case, they came from Poland. Katie bukowski Verus was the eighth of 14 children. She was born in 1909. Her parents had come to Kauai in 1898 She stayed in school through the seventh grade, then worked as a maid for plantation managers, later worked in the cannery of the Kauai Pineapple Company. She was also a cook at the Kaloa Hospital, then a nurse. But when she shared her story in 1987 with Ilani Hodges, she put the focus on her parents, starting with their immigration.
3: Do you know why your parents came to Hawaii? Well, uh, they came to work in the plantations. Hmm. The plantation hired them, you know, so many uh, Germans and the uh, Russians and the Polish. So my parents decided to come with them. So when they came to Kauai, they went right to Koloa? Oh yes, they came and they stayed. They moved to Kalheo. They were given lands in Kalheo as a homestead. Mm -hmm. You go and work your land Mm -hmm. and you live there. And then if you live there for three years, belong to you. That's how most of the people in have got there. The Portuguese people came from Portugal mm-hmm. and they all got lands there and they worked the land. That's why they, they became American citizen in order to get the land. Mm. See, that's where my parents came to be American citizen. But you see, they had such poor uh, luck up there. My parents had a place on a slope hill. So they said every time around like the month of winter months, they would raise their cane. And here comes a storm, you know, would scoop up all their Mm cane and ruin everything. So they took a big loss. So after that, they tried to raise pineapples to see if, you know, they would have better luck. And um, it happened the same thing. So she said she was struggling and with the children and all, they couldn't take it. So they decided that's how they came back to Cologne.
5: Oh, so they gave up their homestead.
3: Oh yes, they did mm-hmm. Oh I see. They just gave it up and mm-hmm. they came to to Koloa and worked in Koloa and they stayed. Oh, I um, see. Uh, oh, okay. They took a contract. They had a contract, yeah. They, uh, the plantation would give them so much uh, acres of land that they had to raise their king. So you work your own king, mm. and if you do good, well, of course the king goes to the mill. Huh? Mm-hmm. But if you do good, well, you get the profit, and you pay so much, I guess, to the plantation and you keep so much, whatever profit you make. Mm. Uh, that's the way it went, and that's how my dad started. My mother would go out and help my dad in the cane field. Hmm. So they had a very hard life, and but they uh, sticked on to Kauai, you know, to Koloa, and they didn't move from here, and we were all born here in Koloa. And where were you living at the time? In the, in the Koloa camp. They had a camp there where they, they would call it the Portuguese camp, And, of course, they they said Portuguese camp, but they were all mixtures. There were Germans, Polish, Russians, and there were uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, a lot of Chinese, you know. Mm -hmm. But it seems like that uh, there were more of the Portuguese, I think, somehow. I don't know how they got the name. They just called it the Portuguese camp. That was just a regular small plantation home? Oh, yes. Uh And how many of you children living there? Was uh, eleven. We lived very happy together.
2: You
1: know, mm-hmm. Katie Viveras lived well into her nineties. Passed away in two thousand three. And just to continue that thread of immigration, our, our next history is from someone who was himself an immigrant from the Philippines. Vicente Bargayo was born in nineteen oh one in Cebu had dreams of being a journalist on his home island, but he had to drop out of high school in 1921 after his mother died. He got a teaching job, and in 1929, he came to Hawaii. In 1987, he talked about his story of coming to Hawaii with Chris Planus.
7: Who did you talk to about coming to Hawaii?
8: Oh, the Sugar Planters Association.
7: They come to your town and...
8: Receive... Yeah, they're Asian, uh, uh, Some aging. Mm-hmm. Then I, I apply... Then I pass, hmm, that's the way.
1: How long did you think you were going to stay?
8: We were, we were signing contract for three years. If you work for three years and you get enough money, then you you can come home and go move with free transportation. But how can we save money at that time? <laughs> no more saving. How can yeah. we go? Right. we we'll save nothing if I, if I stay for a while. You were in
2: Honolulu first.
8: I, I stayed on oh, six days. Six days? Yeah, I signed to Kauai. Kulwa. I didn't no move, nothing. No move, please. Only Kulwa I work until I get my retirement. First, when you came? Came, I got uh, ho- in three days.
7: Ohana. Kalai. Oh, Kalai. Three days. Three days. But mm-hmm.
8: then? Then I applied for uh, helper, tractor helper. Oh. And then after one year working helper, I got an accident. Oh, what happened? Uh, the plow. Well, there was uh, a helper must sit down behind the tractor. So the, we, were, we were harrowing the not level ground, but only sleep like that. So when the, when the driver was uh, turning, how fast he turned the, the helper, then the, the plow touched my So it, it was underneath. I got seven stitches here. Oh, wow. So I actually then uh, <coughs> I applied for um, for the store, 1932. Anyway, mm-hmm. I was admitted. Uh, I was, uh, they take me in the store, 1932. I think July 26. Mm-hmm. Then my then after 1933. Then the boss, uh, the big Luna the plantation, told him, if you like order your family, you can now because after 35, you no can order your family free. So I asked the Campo Boats, Bisaya, in Kurua, that's Gabino Kilantan. So <laughs> this me apply to all of my family. So they came. My wife free, the two children free, only half fair for my for my girl here, who was uh, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Half fair.
7: Are you glad that you came to Hawaii?
8: Yeah, I'm happy. Because I, I managed to, to to order my wife and join me. <laughs> if they were there during the war, I know where know where they where, where, where are they now. Maybe they died. Mm-hmm. 1933, no more war yet. Huh? Mm-hmm. So I ordered them. That's
1: lucky. Lucky, certainly one perspective. Also a lot of hard work along the way for Vincente Bargallo and for so many others at Koloa Plantation as well.
0: Yeah, uh, Melissa, I don't know, jump in here. I mean, you know, you, you folks have uh, certainly, you know, are, are connected, you know, in the community and, and uh, you know, know the different ethnic groups and, and how they've, you know, managed to get along over the years.
6: This is really a root of the festival
0: and also of the book, which is
6: our community today is made up of this tapestry of all these different cultures that came together, starting with the host culture, but then the Chinese, the Japanese, the Portuguese, the Puerto Ricans, they mentioned Poles, Russians, Germans, all together. So so often when people experience Hawaii and our unique experience here, the food, the music, mm-hmm. they don't there aren't many festivals dedicated to the different cultures that come together that make local food what's pigeon, uh, what's a plate lunch, how does this all come together, and the very rich cultural history that came together to, to make us what we are today. So a lot of what Kaloa Plantation Days is about is sharing that history, but the thing that really struck my heart here was the stories of hard work because this is really, this was backbreaking work. When sugar started, it was initially by hand, and then by horse and plow and oxen, and then technology, and then sugar trains. But all the time, it was it was a difficult job to do. So that hard work really connected everyone in the community that was involved.
0: And the idea for the festival, uh, you know, I, I believe you know you folks uh, credit uh, Mayor Tony Moore's wife Phyllis, right, for. Uh, Uh, helping to um, kind of marshal the forces of the community to make sure that we've got this uh, festival going. Uh, Ada, you want to talk about that? Well, I first would like to talk about what uh,
5: Vincente was saying, that uh, they brought his family over. Mm -hmm. There was a period when the, the bachelors, the men without their families, were getting into a lot of trouble, a lot of prostitution, a lot of drinking, so uh, the newspaper at the time uh, brought this attention, and so they, uh, the plantations decided that they would bring the families over, and things really settled down after that. Another thing was that uh, one of the ladies I interviewed actually worked with Vincente, and uh, she said that uh, at that time the people would come up to the counter, and if they ordered a, a pound of sugar they would have to run back to the back room, weigh a pound of sugar, run to the front. And she said that was all day long that they ran back and forth. And then finally, a Charles Singer came, and uh, he made it self-service. It was the first self-service on the island.
0: Well, you know, I, I think uh, just this wonderful, rich history that Kauai has, I think it's, it's wonderful that uh, the community shares it. Uh, you know, with visitors that come, uh, and I know, uh, I think what uh, Governor Ariyoshi was one of the early visitors uh, to this festival way back when.
6: Yes, um, this is Melissa. Just jumping in, so I wanted to share the story of how it was created because Governor Ariyoshi was actually at the very first Koloa Plantation Days in 1985. His wife was planting the million trees of aloha. And the millionth tree of Aloha stands at the corner of Poipu Road, right in front of old Kaloa town, and right by the monument to sugar and the different ethnicities that came together. And as you're driving into Kaloa, you might almost miss it because it's two halves of a sugar grinder. So from the outside, It's just white, but you have to walk inside to see the sculptures. So back in 1985, we were just coming. um, They were recovering after the last hurricane, and they were looking for something to bring people together. And it was the sesquicentennial of sugar and said, okay, um, the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association got together a committee, and uh, one of the members of the committee, Ted Blake, just passed away this year, and he tells a wonderful story in the book about how the monument was was created and the, and the input. But Phyllis Cunimora, the mayor's wife at the time, she was involved in the committee for the overall event, as was Keith Smith, who was our vice president for many, many years and is still writing his own books on island. About, and they brought everyone together, and there was a parade through town. And there was a luau, and they ate in shifts, and this all happened in Kaloa Town. So this was the this was the very first Kaloa Plantation Days festival. And actually, the parade, there was one at the centennial anniversary in 1935, but this one was a lot more inclusive and had all the workers and had everyone in the community was invited to attend. So they didn't hold it the next year and the third year, they said, well, we'd like to get this going again. And Phyllis and several committee members said, let's go, let's do it. And so ever since then, it's been held every single year. Unfortunately, with the exception of last year, due to COVID 19, we were not able to hold the parade and we've held it virtually. And this year, of course, still no large gatherings, but we're so honored to be a part of this talk story this week.
0: Well, we're going to look forward to next year and and hopefully a parade again. Uh, If you're just joining us, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We're talking about the Kaloa Plantation and Kauai's sugar history. You can join our discussion by calling 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break.
1: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, committed to the safety of passengers and staff, with reinforced cleaning procedures and pre-travel testing options. Reservations at hawaiianairlines.com 52 million views on YouTube can't be wrong. Join HPR for a live stream concert with Henry Herbert, the boogie-woogie piano sensation who people just can't stop watching. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your living room, Saturday, July 31st at 6 p.m. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by TS Restaurants. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com.
0: are back with the conversation. I'm Katherine Cruz. We're talking Koloa, Kauai in the 1800s during the earliest days of sugar plantations on the Garden Isle. Joining me for the discussion is HPR's News Director Bill Dorman, as well as a couple of special guests, Ada Akuna, who is working on a book about the Koloa plantation, and Melissa McFerrin, who is the coordinator of the Koloa Plantation Days Festival. So our next oral, oral history clip takes us in a bit of a different direction as part of the plantation story. So, Bill, who do you want to introduce us to
1: next? So, Catherine, our next oral history comes from a plantation doctor. He started doing that work in the 1930s. Dr. Marvin who was born in Jackson, Missouri in 1906. He grew up in farm country near the Mississippi Delta went to medical school at Washington University in St. Louis, graduating in 1930. Now, on Kauai, he was not only the physician for Kaloa Plantation, but also for the McBride Plantation and the Kauai Pineapple Company, among other jobs, such as serving as the government physician for the entire Kaloa district. He later started the Waimea Dispensary and Clinic, but he started his reflections in this oral history talking about what planting the seeds that eventually drew him to Hawaii.
2: Thinking of the island occurred to me the first time when a doctor, um, A.B. Potter, and his wife, Oma, came to Missouri U, the second year of medicine. Dr. Potter gave lectures at the medical school about medicine in Hawaii. And he and Oma took an interest in me, and we became quite friendly. And uh, so, One day, while he was talking about the beauties of Hawaii, I facetiously said to him, well, if you ever hear of an opportunity for a a young doctor in two or three years from now, or when I get through school, uh, I'd like to try it myself. And then I interned at Missouri Baptist for a year, and two weeks before I finished my internship, he called on the phone, and he said, do you want to go to Hawaii? And that was it. So then within three weeks, I was on my way down here. I knew about Waikiki, and uh, that's about it. I knew nothing about the economics, politics, or anything. Then after being here, I saw so many things. The public health department of Hawaii has been so good, was so progressive all the way back from the early 1900s. The public health system of Hawaii, was mainly supported by plantation doctors. Each plantation doctor was an agent of the Health Department of Hawaii. When I first came here, we had around 300 infant deaths out of 1,000 that occurred. So we all held baby clinics, maternal clinics. We'd go out into the plantation and hold them. Sometimes we'd have them in the hospital. So we were constantly teaching nutrition. We were constantly teaching to get their shots. And this thing just started dropping just like that. Hawaii is one of the first states that had smallpox vaccination and diphtheria, too.
7: Who was responsible for this progressive public health
2: policy? The Super Board of Health, it existed from about and fifty. It was just like an umbrella over the, all the islands because the medical care was for free. So there's no obstruction to them coming because they didn't have to worry about whether they could afford it or not. Did you recommend certain foods to certain families?
7: Um, yeah, I did. How we did you go know about doing that?
2: We just told them what we considered an adequate maintenance diet. We taught them to uh, eat vegetables and so on. Then, of course, we talked against uh, white rice, huh? Because, as I remember, eating a half a bag of rice a month, uh, an adult individual was potentially very very Half of a hundred pound bag, you mean? Yeah. People could go out and, and get all the food they wanted, but they just ate too much white rice and white bread, the Portuguese.
1: Dr. Brennicky passed away in 1994, and you hear this interview from 1987. It jumps out not only about the quality of the medical care, but the payment for the medical care by way of the Board of Health, set up around 1850 in the Kingdom days and then through the years. The interviewers, by the way, heard talking to Dr. Brennicky there were uh, Warren Nishimoto and Michi Kodama Nishimoto as well.
0: Yeah, fascinating, fascinating times. Um, Ada, I don't know, uh, what are you struck by as you hear the doctor's story?
5: Well, can I jump in? Mm -hmm. Um, On uh, Thursday, one of the ladies that's going to come in and talk story with us is uh, Bobby Waterhouse-McCord. Her great-great-grandfather was the only doctor on the island for 40 years, the only Western trained doctor. And that was uh, starting in 1840. And uh, when there was a smallpox epidemic in Hawaii, he rode on his horse, all the way to Haina on the North Shore, then back and all the way to Manaa. And uh, at that time, there were no roads, only trails. We had 40 rivers and streams. And this man did that. So you talk about you know how me- medicine started here in Hawaii. And then later on, uh, there was uh, T.N. Wilcox. Uh, you've heard of Wilcox Hospital. Uh, he also owned the uh, 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 Lahui Sugar Plantation, or Grove Farm Sugar Plantation. And um, he installed first telephone here on Kauai, and it, it went from his house uh, in uh, Lihue and that of the Rice family in, in Lahui, and it came all the way out here to a Dr. Smith's house. So if anybody in Lahui got sick, uh, they would put them on the phone and uh, uh, Dr. Smith would say, uh, "Put the put the patient on and have him cough, and then he would diagnose <laughs> him from that." So, but then later on, uh, the, uh, Wilcox had a telephone installed all over the island, and that it was in, finally uh, in 1912. It was finished.
0: I love it. Early telemedicine.
1: I was going to say, you're... you're Previous, uh, yeah, tel- earliest iteration of telemedicine. Also interesting, though, in terms of how long that that goes back. Uh, of course, now in in time of COVID, people talking about vaccinations and about public health. Uh, but that sense was was back there and enabled by these traveling physicians as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, I I remember, uh, gosh, just you know, visiting the different islands and and coming across a cemetery on the Big Island. And there was one family, and they had lost, oh, my gosh, so many children, you know, like uh, like, almost a dozen children early on. And, and the health, you know, was not the greatest for, for little ones back then. So to to listen, you know, to how they set up those uh, maternal clinics and reaching out uh, for early maternal care was, is really touching to hear. Uh, Melissa, what are you struck by?
6: Well, just to add on to what you said, that that was one That was one of the reasons why baby's first luau was such a big thing because you wanted to make sure that the baby would make it through the first year. And so that's what really struck me with a lot of these interviews is the amazing detail about how challenging life was, but also the joy in the midst of it and how people would get together and celebrate when there was these first luau Um, you know one of the things that struck me too as this is the third I I think this is a marvelous project by the way with oral histories with UH and, and putting this together to share it because even with the own interview series of interviews we have done it's striking to see how many of these people are now deceased and the importance of capturing these stories and relaying them and so that alone, I ju- I learned something every time I listen to one of these interviews. So I think it will be well worth it to join the Zoom on Thursday and hear more from these excerpts.
0: Well, we certainly thank you, um, uh, Melissa McFerrin, uh, for listeners out there. She's a the coordinator of the Koloa Plantation Day Celebration. Uh, And our second guest is Ada Kuna, who's been working on a book about the Kaloa Plantation called A Talk Story. Uh, You know, just wonderful history. So we thank you, both of you, for working on this project to keep this uh, history alive. And, you know, we do have um, uh, we do encourage you to call in if you. Uh, been struck by something uh, that you heard here, uh, give us a call here at 941 or 877-941-3689. And we have one more oral history clip to share this morning. And Bill, again, is this uh, another perspective that's a little different?
1: A little different. Uh, this is a Nisei story. Second-generation Japanese, Robert uh, Kunimura, was born in Koloa in 1915, the sixth of 11 children, another one of those large families. He grew up in the camp. Uh, His parents came to Hawaii from Yamaguchi, Japan. But what is different about this story is that he was a union organizer. He started signing up workers with the ILWU, the International Longshore Warehouse Union, in the late 1930s played a key role after the war and in the first territory-wide sugar strike in 1946. He was president of the Kauai Local of the ILWU and eventually went back to working on the plantation. But in this 1987 interview, he started off with memories of growing up in what was officially called the New Mill Camp at Koloa.
7: The camp, like any other plantation, they segregated the workers by a race. So where I was, brother, was Japanese camp. Okay? So practically all Japanese live in that uh, camp. And they they were meal workers because of the proximity from the camp to the meal. And the plantation had a strict control about that. Okay? If you were of other racial groups, if you wanted to move into the Japanese camp, so you, you didn't They wouldn't allow you to come. Yeah. About the... Uh, 19, uh, 30s, uh, yeah, they started to, you know, be more flexible about that. Yeah. By that time, our parents were, you know, more assimilated with the other racial group. Already, yeah. the, the prejudice wasn't that strong in the 30s already. Yeah. Japanese say, already, you know, Take it for granted already that there shouldn't be any discrimination. Yeah. Because after all, Who created all these uh, division? Is the plantation? They wanted the workers to always have some suspicion. That's the way I could see. Because there were a lot of unions that came up in the plantation, but strictly along racial lines. So, if when the Filipinos strike, the Japanese are working, and when the Japanese are striking, the Filipinos go. Well, I mention it because. They were the two predominant uh, group in uh numerical Did you want the workers to band together. At every strike, union, or strike along that line, racial line, got smashed until the advent of the I.L.M.U., which uh, organized the workers in one union, regardless of race, color, or yeah, national origin. Yeah. By that time, there was no language, too much of the language difficulties. Because more or less, everybody was speaking English, you yeah. What's in store for the future of Koloa? Say in, you know, 30, 40 years? 30, 40 years from now? My colleague, uh, Warren, that's... Uh, <laughs> we got into 2020, right? Yeah. I hate to project that, uh, mm. I hate, because... See, when I was on the project commission... Uh, this uh, consulted. Oh, uh, the 1990, 1990, we don't have uh, 80,000 population of Hawaii the projection based on so many criteria. Yeah, and this is almost like we like that even see what yeah. <laughs> uh, they project, number two.
1: Robert Kunimura speaking with Warren Nishimoto. This population projection, he was talking about, by the way, uh, a projection of uh, 80,000 people on Kauai by 1990. There still aren't 80,000 people living on Kauai population in 2019, just under 73,000. But uh, some real perspective on that, on the labor and organization side as oh, well. Oh, yeah.
0: And and it's fascinating, too, because when you think of the Hanapepe massacre, mm. Yeah, you know, in the twenties, uh, and how that got organized, uh, just to reflect back on, I guess, the tension that they wanted to create uh, within the camp with the different uh, ethnic groups. Uh, but Melissa, I don't know, chime in here. What do you think? Well, you know, that was that
6: was a reality as things grew. Um, one thing that was interesting that one historian pointed out was that Kaloa was statewide, it it was relatively calm in that respect, um, that the plantation camps were closer together, and many of the memories were of the intermixing between the different camps and the kids playing together and studying together. And one thing um, that he did mention was language, and that's always... Uh, um, one of my favorite memories of the late Stella Burgess, Auntie Stella Burgess, was explaining the root of pigeon and how it got started and how it was used. And, and that is something that really anybody who grew up together on the state, that there's an understanding of how folks communicated and it was passed down. And there were kids as well that went to Japanese language school, after school in Kaloa. And there was attempts to pass down the culture, but yet there was a mixing. And Keith Smith described it and said, this is not about being a melting pot. What made it so wonderful and unique was that it was more like a stew where each group had their own Flavor, holidays, music, and and we honored each other. And I think that's speaking from the positive, some of the good times. I think this is what we really try to honor with the festival and preserve and keep alive.
0: And Ada, of uh, you know, of the folks that you interviewed, um, you know, what do they say about uh, this particular time? that, you know, union organizing. Well, I
5: talked to Mamo Kanashiro the other day. Mamo is 95 years old and he knew Robert Kunimura and he said, "Well, at the time the salaries, you know, were were pretty low and there wasn't much savings and such. But he said as the salaries went up, um we we got to a point where we couldn't compete with Brazil and Thailand and the other countries and they and that's what sh- slowly sugar uh, started to phase out here in Hawaii because of uh, uh of the costs but also at that time uh, uh, in order to try to make ends meet they uh the plantation moved the people out of the free housing and uh, they encouraged people to buy the houses which a lot of people did
0: and you know uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be on Kauai just before the pandemic shutdown and uh, you know, been in contact with uh, farmers over there. Uh, one farm in particular, I think he's got some property there on Grove Farms, and he's growing rice for the California farmers, uh, you know, as, uh, to develop research. But it's just interesting just to see the, you know, the history uh, and the transformation from, uh, you know, uh, way back then and then present day and how we're still trying to, you know, eke out a living with ag uh, but yeah certainly uh, uh lots of nuances as we uh, as we reflect back of you know the history of the plantation days
5: yeah well mamo's uh, father uh, he had 11 kids and you you mentioned that everybody had large families i so many of the people i interviewed came from families of 10 or 11 kids uh, somebody said that they didn't know what was causing it all but uh mamo's father started raising hogs and and they raised it he raised it right next to their house and uh eventually uh the, it, he became so popular his hog, his hogs did, so that uh, the neighbors started complaining about the smell so they moved to Omao and uh started a hog farm and uh, we just celebrated 100 years of uh hog farming for the Kaneshiro family and uh then Uh, Mamo, having reached the ripe old age, they decided to close it down. So we celebrated 100 years of Kaneshiro Farms.
0: Anything else that uh, you want to add, Melissa, just about how we try and, uh, you know, bridge the gap here between the past and the present and the future? Well, I
6: think something that's really key is that this is about agriculture and that this was sugar was king for you know 150 years. It was the number one industry on the island. And when that changed, that was that was very difficult and heartbreaking for many people who had spent their whole lives working in sugar, but also a wonderful opportunity to move on and to, and to change. But we still deal with the agriculture question today. Um, moving on to diversified agriculture, and we've often asked, you know, why why wasn't any sugar maintained, and actually the one folks, the folks that hung on to just a little bit of sugar is Kaloa Rum, and we spent some time with Bob Gunter, and they're just doing an amazing job. I don't, if you haven't tried it, it's absolutely delicious, but they bought about 60 tons of the final sugar harvest out in Gay and Robinson and that was and they have now collected 40 types of sugar and I look forward to when sugar comes home to Kaloa and we can see a little bit of this again but for those that come and say how can I touch this how can I experience this you'll see little hints all around the town even when you're not in a festival time. Old Kaloa Town has these posters that talk about what the buildings used to be. If you go to the Kaloa Fish Market, you can have a plate lunch. Um, If you listen to the music down at the farmer's market, Johnny can tell you stories about um, growing up in sugar and being on the Sabay Gang. So the stories are still there. And we try to keep it alive because Phyllis Kutimura was first and foremost a teacher. And she said, we need to share this with our children and with our grandchildren and make sure that these stories carry on so that we know where we, where we came from and, and where we're going.
0: You know, you mentioned diversified ag. And, you know, on that Kauai trip, uh, you know, Jerry Ornelas uh, took me around because he's trying to bring rice back. You know, and we went down to uh, uh, visit the Haraguchis down there where they're growing taro, where all that used to be in rice. Uh, you know, so, it uh, you know, there, there was also uh, Don Hecock. Uh, he's got the water buffalo uh, back in the picture again as he tries to work his farm over there on Kauai, too. Uh, you know, so a wonderful history uh, that's the uh that we can stop and reflect on. But then also, like I said, lots of farmers working to make sure that we keep ag in the picture there on Kauai. And Ada, I know you uh, have talked to so many people. You managed to collect a number of wonderful photographs, I think, that are going to go into that book that you're working on. Uh, You know, and and I I know you had shared a story that we had thought that some of the photos were lost in, in Hurricane Iniki, but we found out they were saved.
5: Yes, it's a wonderful story. Um, there, in 1985, when they had the celebration, uh, the Friends of Kaloa and the Kaloa Library uh, wrote a book about Kaloa, the history of Kaloa. And uh, it, it uh, is out of print now and such, and I happened to find it one day, and I saw some uh, ancestor uh, pictures, some pictures of people that were photographed in their native costumes when they came off the boat and arrived here in Kauai. And uh, so I I asked David, I said, where did you get these pictures? Where can I get them? Well, he went back, uh, David's the librarian, and uh, he went back in his office, and he came out with three books full of photographs. And here were the pictures that he had talked about. Well, at some point, we, we made our selection, And it was very difficult because there were so many good ones. And uh, so we made the selection, and uh, Melissa went up to see the, uh, uh, it it belonged to to, uh, Mabel Hashisaka. And so um, um, Melissa took the pictures up to the family to get their permission for us to put them in the book. Well, they were so shocked when they saw the pictures. They said, these pictures were ruined in uh, Hurricane Iniki. We had the pictures in the basement, and they were so happy that we still had, I don't know if it was all of the pictures, but we had quite a few. So that was a, a very positive story.
0: Well, that's terrific uh, that they were saved. And, Melissa, uh, any final thoughts here? I know the, the book's going to come out, what, later this year, beginning of next year?
6: That's right. Well, and it, it started, the project started four years ago. And every time we talk about it, more people come out of the woodwork. So some there's been some amazing individuals that have dug up family photos from years ago that we never knew existed. And this is really a community project. You know, myself and Ada have curated this project and put it together. But, I mean, the real thanks goes to the people and the families of Koloa and Kauai who are keeping these memories live. So we look forward to sharing more of them coming up next year with Koloa Plantation Days.
0: Well, I really want to be there when you start this up. I don't know if I can stay all 10 days, but I would uh, certainly love to be a part of it, just uh, sharing this history today. Uh, any final thoughts, Bill? Just thinking about what, you know, this rich history.
1: This sweep, the variety, and, you know, as tourism shifts as well, you hope that history is one of these elements of uh, of tourism that is, uh, that is beyond just beaches.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you, Bill Dorman. Any Do you have thoughts? a minute for
5: yes. a final thought? Oh, yeah, real quick. <laughs> I, okay, I just wanted to say that uh, so many of the 70 people I interviewed became friends. Oh, and yes. uh, what came through was the strong sense of community. Everybody loved Kaloa.
0: Nice. Okay, thank Beautiful. you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill Dorman. Thank you, Melissa McFerrin. Uh, she's the coordinator of the Kaloa Plantation Days Festival and Ada Kuna. Uh, She's working on that book about the Kaloa Plantation. A huge mahalo to our partners at the University of Hawaii Center for Oral History. Uh, They're hosting this virtual listening event this Thursday at 5.30 p.m. to honor the rich heritage and memories of Kaloa. We'll have links to RSVP on our website later today. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us on today's show. The annual Kaloa Plantation Day celebration has been postponed to 2022 because of COVID. Learn more at KaloaPlantationDays.com. Have a comment to share about today's show? Call our Talk Back line, 808 792 8217. Send us an email at talkback at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. And if you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.